Hey everybody, thanks for joining us for Thrive tonight. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible. And for hundreds and thousands of years, the people of God have turned to this particular book in order to learn how to pray. And so that's what we're doing. Each week we're taking a look at a different psalm to see what it has to say to us about how to pray. And what's interesting about this is that prayer, of course, is a universal phenomenon. Every religion prays. But what this series is allowing us to see is whether or not there's anything particularly unique to how Christianity prays. How is it that Christians are called to pray? That's what this series is helping us uncover. Two weeks ago, we learned that prayer is, first of all, a relational space as opposed to a ritual space. Prayer is first and foremost not a religious duty, but first and foremost it's a means of experiencing relationship with God. Last week, we learned that there's no emotion, doubt, or struggle that we can't take to God in prayer, and that therefore there can be this incredible vulnerability and authenticity in prayer, and that therefore prayer is not so much a place to be good, but a place to be honest. At the same time, however, when we come to today's theme, it's worth saying that prayer is, is more than just a space of vulnerability. It's also a place of awe and reverence. And the reason for this is that when we come before God in prayer, we're coming before God in prayer. And if that's the case, prayer has to be more than just a venting session. Prayer is ultimately something that is meant to transform us as we encounter a God who is awesome and holy. And so the question today is, how do you prepare your heart for that? How can prayer heat up your heart so that prayer comes naturally and, and flows naturally? That's our topic for today, which is why the title of this message is Prayer as Preparation. Prayer as Preparation. The psalm that we're going to look at this evening is Psalm 139. I'm going to read this psalm for us, and then we're just going to look at it for the next 15 minutes or so. So listen now to Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! 
How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This psalm that we just read is probably one of the most awe-inspiring and intimate psalms in the entire Bible. And I want to look at it tonight by highlighting a couple of the features that are found in it. And the way that I'd like to do that is by pointing out that there are four wonders in this psalm and a prayer. Four wonders and a prayer. One of the problems with prayer, I think one of the reasons why prayer um, can be challenging and why sometimes our prayers can feel so limp and so shallow is because we forget whom it is that we're praying to. And so what David does in this psalm is to meditate on just who it is he's praying to. And he does this by reflecting on some of God's attributes. So if you were to look at the first six verses of the psalm, what you'll notice is there's a common theme here. David is reflecting on the fact that God is all-seeing, that there is nothing that God doesn't know. So he gives a couple of examples here. He points out that God knows what he speaks. God knows what he thinks. God knows everything that he does. And one of the implications of this, by the way, is that if God truly knows us this intimately, it actually means that God knows us better than we know ourselves. One of the buzzwords for our generation is the word authenticity. And the idea is that we have to be authentic to who we believe that we are and that no one can dare tell us what that is or is not. But what the Bible says here is that we actually don't even know who we are. It's impossible to be truly authentic just in and of ourselves. If you want to be truly authentic, the only way to be truly authentic is to find your true identity in the God who knows you better than you know yourself. And it's also true here that David is saying that God knows more than just merely the facts about us. God knows us with an intimate, involved familiarity. I mean, one of the things that David says here is that God has searched him out. And here, a parallel verse to this might be the verse that's found in the book of Proverbs. This is Proverbs 20, 27, that says, The lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man. It searches out his inmost being. And the idea here is that God sees and knows every nook and cranny of us. There's no depth of our heart that his lamp has not seen and, and shined light into. So the first attribute that David meditates on, the first wonder here, is that God is all-seeing. There's nothing he doesn't know. The second wonder, the second attribute, is found in verses 7 through 12. Here David is meditating on the fact that God is all-present. There's nowhere he can't be found. And he just thinks of the points of the compass. You know, he says, man, if I were to ascend all the way to the heavens, if I were to go up, I would find God there. If I were to descend all the way to the depths, I would find God there. And then he imagines, what would it be like if I tried to go as far to the east as I could? He says, if I could run to where the sun rises, to where the dawn is, even there I would find God. And then he thinks about the opposite direction. 
you know, back in ancient Israel, the west would have been where the Mediterranean Sea was. So David says, if I went that way, if I went all the way to the edge of the sea, even there, God's presence couldn't, couldn't elude me. God's presence is, is, is omnipresent. And this is no less true for believers in God today than it was for David. You know, I once heard a, a Christian talking to a non-Christian about what it's like to know God. And one of the things that he said that has always stuck with me is that to know God means to never truly feel alone. I mean, man, talk about something that really matters at a time right now when many of us actually are physically alone, locked in our houses because of the coronavirus. And yet, this man's testimony was that because I know God, I never have to feel truly alone. God is all-present. There's nowhere he can't be found. And then the third wonder is in verses 13 through 16. God is all-creating. There's nothing he can't do. And here, what David is reflecting on is the fact that, that God is creator, that literally everything in creation, God has fashioned, and that without him, nothing that has been made would be made. And the specific exhibit A that, that David turns to is literally his own skin and bone. All he has to do is look at the palm of his hand and be struck with wonder that God made him. And if you were to paraphrase this section of the psalm, you could put it like this. You know, it's as though David is saying to God, God, you made every muscle and sinew and cell of my body. And not only that, you're also sovereign over every detail of my life. And this, this is what David is getting at in verse 16. He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And what that means is that God is so intimately involved in creating not just our, our physical bodies, but in creating every single day of our lives, that there is no moment that we live that is outside of his sovereign hand. And what this also means is that the day of our birth is ordained and the day of our death is ordained, and that nothing happens by accident. And if this really is true, then what that means is that if you're a Christian, you are immortal until the work that God has given you on this earth is done. So these are some of the things that David is reflecting about in this psalmist. He's thinking about, who is it that I'm praying to? He said so far that there are at least three incredible things about the God he's praying to. Number one, this God is all-knowing. There's nothing he doesn't see. This God is all-present. There's no place he, he can't be found. And this God is also all-creating. There's nothing he cannot do. And if you were to use the language of theologians, what you might say here is that David has been reflecting on the attributes of God. You know, where David says that there's nothing that God doesn't know, the word for that is the word omniscience. Or where David says there's nowhere where God can't be found, the word for that is omnipresence. Or that there's nothing that God can't do, the word for that is omnipotence. And so David is reminding himself of whom he's praying to. And, and the reason why this is so important, the reason why this is so crucial when it comes to preparing your heart to come before God in prayer, is that by default, we don't start off with the right ideas about who God is. And this has been something that has literally been scientifically and sociologically verified. You know, a number of years ago, there were a couple of professional researchers, and they wanted to study what American teenagers really believe about God. So they did a bunch of research, they conducted a bunch of interviews, and what they found was, was that even though many of the American teens that they interviewed would have claimed to have been Christians or would have claimed to have believed in God, what they really believed about God was completely different from what God says about himself in the Bible. And in fact, it was so different that they actually gave a name 
to this belief system that they uncovered in the lives of American teenagers. And what they called it was moralistic therapeutic deism. And here are the tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, God created the world and he wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Number two, the most important goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number three, God isn't really involved in your life. He may be there to help bail you out of a problem, but he really is not concerned or involved in the day-to-day circumstances of life. And so if you were to summarize the findings of these researchers into what many American people in our generation believe, what you could say is that essentially God is just seen as a distant vending machine. He exists just to give us what we want. This is what our modern secular culture thinks of God. But in Psalm 139, David says, No, the God I am praying to is holy. And man, you guys, if we forget this, prayer is going to feel dead, it's going to feel lifeless, and it's going to feel boring. One of the things that that I have found myself doing just in recent days as I've been trying to to, to begin turning my heart toward God in prayer is I think about Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, it's a description of what is happening in heaven in the throne room of God right now. And what it says is that in the throne room, in heaven, before God, right now, the heavenly host is falling down on their face and they're saying before God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it says they never stop doing that. That they cry that out day and night forever and ever and ever. Why why is this? Well, it's because... Before the very presence of God, there's a clear glimpse of who God is. They see God for who he really is, and their response is to be so struck with awe, so struck with amazement, that they can do nothing but want to worship. The reason why so many of our prayers are dead is that our understanding of who God truly is, is dead. What David does here is he reminds his heart of who it is that he's praying to. And and, and most importantly of all in this, he actually reminds himself of one final thing about the God he's praying to. I said that there were four wonders here. We've seen three of them. There's one more. You know, there, there are lots of different ways that David could have beheld the attributes of God. You know, these things like omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence. I mean, if you want to have a glimpse of God's omnipotence, I mean, look no further than up. You know, all you have to do is look into the sky on a starry night. And just behold the size of the universe, the wonders that God has created in the natural world. I mean, that's enough to bowl anyone over. But did you notice here that the focus of every single one of the attributes of God that David meditates on has to do with God's care and concern for us? So when David is talking about God's knowledge, God's omniscience, what he says is he's saying, God... I'm amazed not just that you know everything. I'm amazed that you know me. When he's thinking about God's omnipresence, he's saying, God, I'm amazed not just that you're present everywhere. I'm I'm amazed that you're present with me. 
And when he's talking about God's omnipotence, he's saying, Lord, I'm amazed not just that you created everything. I'm amazed that you created me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You created my inmost being. Now, this is absolutely wonderful. One of the common beliefs of, of the modern secular culture that we live in is that Christianity, at the end of the day, is really no different than any of the other world religions. And the idea is that, you know, man, after all, it sure seems as though all of these religions are simply different paths to the same goal. But that's actually something that we can test. We can test whether or not Christianity is truly unique, and we can do that by comparison. You know, it's been said that comparison is the mother of clarity. And as just one example here, let's just take what Psalm 139 has said. Let's compare it to one other world religion. And let's take Islam as an example. So it's actually pretty interesting to notice that if you were to look at the God of Islam, Muslims would believe that God is actually a lot of the things that are in this psalm. God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is all-present. And actually on that last one, it says in the Quran that Allah, the God of Islam, is nearer to human beings than their jugular vein. But this is not the kind of closeness that comes from care or compassion. This is the kind of closeness of someone who's looking over your shoulder, who's ready to condemn you every time you do something wrong. And that's because the God of Islam is not a God of love. Of the 99 names that Muslims give to Allah, one that is very conspicuously missing is the name Father. Allah is never considered a loving Father because He is considered so high and supreme that He would never condescend to love us. And that is the very opposite of Psalm 139. The fourth wonder here in Psalm 139 is that in the midst of all of God's power, all of God's knowledge, all of God's presence, those attributes of God are directed toward love. And here's the way that we know that. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, David says, If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. The reason that we know that God's attributes in this psalm are directed toward his love is that this verse is a glimpse of the gospel. When David says that if he were to descend to the depths, he'd find God there, the word depths is a word called shale. And shale means grave. The question then would be, how, you know, how is this possible? How could God enter the grave? For God to be present in the grave, wouldn't that mean that he would have had to have died? And surely God can't die. Or can he? The miracle of Christianity and the reason that Christianity is distinct from every other world religion is that in Christianity, God and the person of his son did die, and he died for us. His love was so overwhelmingly profound that he was willing to lay down his life in order to die for us in our place. And this is what the cross means. On the cross, God and the person of Jesus took upon himself all of our sin. He, he put on his own back the, the, the most excruciating kind of physical pain that, that could have been inflicted by the ancient world at that time. And he took upon himself the sum total of all of God's wrath, all of God's punishment for sin, a, a, a sum of, of suffering that no mind can even conceive. This is the God of Christianity. And the reason why this is so important is that if you read through this psalm and you only notice all of God's power, if you only notice all of God's glory and you don't notice that 
God has purposed to direct those things to us in love, then you're going to be scared of him. And in fact, you can even get a glimpse of this here. I mean, do you notice that in this psalm, in verse 7, after David has spent all kinds of time meditating in the first six verses about the fact that God knows everything, what does David want to do in verse 7? In verse 7, he wants to run away. (laughs) He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The reason that David wants to run away is because he realizes that if God knows everything, then God knows him. And that to be fully known is an absolutely terrifying prospect. I mean, can you imagine the rawness and the realness and the vulnerability and and just how horrifying it would be if every single thing in your life, including your deepest, darkest secrets, were emblazoned on a Times Square billboard for everyone to see? I mean, just now imagine that emblazoned on a billboard for God to see. I mean, the the eyes of the only person who, in in the whole universe that count, see every single square inch of your life, including the parts that you're most ashamed of. I mean, to be fully known in that kind of way would be so raw, so real, so vulnerable, so horrifying, that that we would would never want to be with this God. We would do what David does. We would try to run away. But what if we could be fully known by God? And fully loved at the same time. What if God knew the deepest, most shameful parts of ourselves and he still loved us? I heard a story once that makes me think of this. And it was just, it was, it was a story about a guy who struggled with a, an addiction to pornography. And he knew it was wrong. And he wanted to honor God. And, and, and yet he just couldn't break free of it. And so, you know, as you can imagine, like, he obviously is just, like, loaded down with guilt, loaded down with shame. One day he finds himself back in the rut, and he's, he's, he's watching pornography, and he just says that without any kind of, of warning, he just all of a sudden felt the presence of God just come and surround him, and he just felt overwhelmed by a love that just was, was overpowering. And this is while he's in the middle of doing something that he's so deeply ashamed of. And he realized in that moment that God was a God who saw him in all of his, his brokenness for what it was, and yet he still loved him. This is what this psalm says that God is like. We have a God who knows us to the tip of our toes and yet loves us to the skies. And David's response is awe and wonder. And that takes us to the very last part of the psalm. You know, so I said that there are four wonders in this psalm. And we've looked at those. But now finally, at the very conclusion, there's a prayer. In verses 23 through 24, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What David's response is to all of the the glories of of God that he's been pondering is is to be so overawed with God. The first thing he does is he actually rebukes his enemies. In the verses right before this, you'll notice he has some pretty harsh words against all of those who would oppose God. But then what David realizes at the very conclusion of this psalm is that the, the enemies of God are not those on the outside. The enemies of God are actually the demons in my heart on the inside. And he prays these moving words, God, to, to, that, that God would search him, that God would know him, that God would test him, and that God would winnow out from him anything 
that would be offensive to such a great and glorious God. The last thing that David teaches us here about preparing to pray is the importance of doing what you might call a spiritual frisk. <laughs> That's what these last couple of verses essentially are. You and a police officer does a frisk on someone. It's a way of feeling whether or not there are any dangerous or illegal items that he or she may be hiding. And what David does in these last two verses is he's inviting God to feel up and down his soul to see if there are any dangerous or illegal sins that may be hiding there in his inner life. And the reason why he does this is because he now knows that when you see God correctly, you see yourself correctly. When you see God correctly, you see yourself correctly. You know, if pride, for example, is a struggle for you, there are really only two solutions to that. Number one is to get married. Number two is to get God. And the reason that God is the only way to truly heal pride is that it's impossible to be in the presence of God and not be humbled. When you get to know God, when you behold like David does in this psalm, all of his majesty, all of his holiness, it exposes the unconverted parts of our hearts, even the parts that we're not aware of. And in these last verses, it's as though David is saying, God, as I come into your presence, would you expose all the parts of me that aren't worthy of the king? And so that's how he ends this psalm. He ends the psalm with a prayer for God to search him out and to eliminate from him any parts that are unworthy of the king. And just as David ends the psalm in prayer, that's how I'm going to end this message right now. I'm going to take this psalm and I'm, I'm going to turn it into a prayer for us as we move now uh, to discussing what we've heard in small groups. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are a God who transcends all of our understanding. And Father, that if we were to, to ponder all of your goodness, all of your glory, all of your greatness, it would take an eternity. Lord, would you help us to prepare our hearts to pray to you by reflecting on who you really are so that we wouldn't wind up praying to a God who isn't real. And Father, in light of who you are, would you just do a spiritual frisk on us? Would you just feel up and down our soul in order to root out anything in us that is wrong, that's not worthy of being taken into the presence of the King? Lord, just thank you that you allow us to come to you in prayer. And would you teach us how to pray to you so that we might experience your awe and intimacy in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.